Well, again, we're in our study of the Lord's Prayer, and you remember this is a prayer taught to us by Jesus twice in the New Testament, once in Luke 11, and of course in Matthew 6, and he teaches his disciples not only what to say when they pray, but also this instructs them on how they ought to live, and it's made up of several parts, you remember. First, there's an invocation to God as Father, and then there's three petitions to the Father, and then there's four petitions about the family, about one another. That gives us seven petitions total. We're in the sixth petition tonight. And then eventually it ends with a doxology, praising God for who he is and, and what he does. And so far in our study, we've invoked alongside Jesus the Father, his Father, who is now through Christ our Father too. And we also prayed for God's holiness and glory to come and transform not only us, but eventually transform this world, that his kingdom would truly come to earth. And then we've begun praying for one another. And so we've prayed for our most basic needs, our daily bread, in other words, not only for ourselves, but also for each other. And we also prayed for the forgiveness of sins. And remember, um, the, our understanding of sin is much deeper than just little foibles that we have, but it's, it's, uh, um, sin is a, is a radical, detrimental reality in which this world is now plunged. And so we know that there's times in which maybe we're not even aware, but we've committed some sin in thought, word, or maybe even deed. And so we pray that, that God would continually forgive us, but also to help us to be forgiving to one another. And so now we come to a rather puzzling, um, perhaps, you know, if last week I said, um, and forgive us our debts, that's maybe one of the most challenging. I would say that maybe this is one of the most puzzling phrases in all of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation. Now, some translations render this something along the lines of save us from trial or the time of trial. But what exactly does that mean to, that when we pray, lead us not into temptation? What does that look like? Well, a few years ago, I'm not sure if you remember this, this made kind of a global stir in some ways, and it was making headlines and news outlets across the world, but the current Pope, Francis, he suggested in a TV interview that it might be time for us English speakers to to change our wording of this part of the Lord's Prayer when it comes to the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation. And he said in this interview, he says, it's not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls, however. It's not God pushing me into temptation to, see, to then see how I've fallen. And a father doesn't do that. A father helps you get up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department. Now, there's many things that, many things, I would agree, disagree, rather, Pope Francis over, but I I certainly am sympathetic from where he is coming from in this. You know, Wes Hill points out that in Christian theology, we would say that God is never understood as the one who is the tempter, who tries to lure people into sin. God is never the origin of evil. We just don't believe that. And if we don't um, uh, believe that, from theology, we certainly shouldn't believe it from Scripture, even better. After all, James, the apostle, tells us in his letter, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, No one undergoing a trial or 
the same word for temptation here, no one undergoing a trial or temptation should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So straight from the horse's mouth. Now, if you're like me, you're seeing a little bit of a maybe a, a, a paradox here. How is it we pray, don't lead us into temptation, and yet the apostles and their witness say, God doesn't lead us into temptation. How are, what are we to make of this? Well, James goes on to say in the, in the following verses how it's our own evil desires that lead us and lure us into sin. And it's our own fallen selves we deduce from that that want to project our own cruel or foolish inclinations onto God. In other words, we believe that God is like us in error, in ignorance. We believe he's like us. And so sometimes how we might enjoy tricking somebody or trapping them, um, that maybe God does it like we do, just for the fun of it, or just because he's feeling mean. But that's not the case. Because when we look at God, we see God in the face and the person of the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who's come to rescue us from sins, not to deliver us over unto sin. And so we are never tempted by God to sin or to stray. So on the one hand, I'm sympathetic with the, the, the Pope's quote there. However, the Bible's complicated. I'm sure you all know that very well. Because it's rife with stories in which God still tests his people. That's what we saw in our Exodus story this morning where the Lord explicitly said, I'm going to test these people. I'm going to give them an opportunity to trust me. Wes Hill compares him to a metalsmith where he applies heat and pressure on his people, but it's in order to refine their faith. It's in order to strengthen their obedience so they might be more durable, more productive, even more powerful on the other side. And so, of course, we've seen this not only in the story of Exodus, where God sets out to test his people, but perhaps the most famous example comes to us from Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac, his promised son, as a sacrifice. You know, Isaac is not his only child, but he's the only child of this covenant with God. When Abraham thought God wasn't going to be good to his word, he and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands, and he produced an heir with a slave girl, Ishmael. But that's not the, the chosen heir of God. Neither was the, the, the servant that, that uh, Abraham wanted to, to be. Instead, it's this Isaac, and it's his only child was Sarah. And so we remember that story. How is it possible that God, who's promised that from many nations, uh, or from this one man, many nations of the world would come? That's what the name Abraham means, father of many nations. How is it that he's going to now take his only son from him? So we read in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. And we hear something that's just utterly jarring to us. The Lord says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. And you remember how that story ends. Abraham acts in faith. And ultimately, Isaac is spared, but it is not before Abraham's heart goes through the fire, through the furnace itself. It's pretty far in the process where Isaac is bound 
Abraham's raising up his hand to do the deed. And it's there that ultimately the Lord intervenes. And so through it all, we see that his faith endures. And we read um, later in that chapter, then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. That's the Lord speaking through his messenger. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. So it's clear in some sense that God tests his people. He's done this since Abraham, the father of, of the Israelite people. And we see all throughout the Old Testament, this is a key way in which the Lord even relates to Israel through testing. Again, West Hill, I think, has a great metaphor here. Um, In key points in Israel's history, God lays them on the anvil to test their mettle. We read also from some of the other great uh, heroes of the faith, we might say, King David writes in Psalm 26, he even says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. Now, he does go on to say, with this caveat, for your faithful love guides me, and I live by your truth. So we get kind of a glimpse of how it is that the Lord tests. He does it with faithful love and and guidance and grace. But all of this should make us, I think, sit back and reflect on the ways in which the Lord even tests us as a people? How does the Lord test us in our own dark nights of the soul? And how might he he be testing and refining us in the fires of, of, of tests and trials that come? So all of this is to say, whatever lead us not into temptation, whatever that prayer means, it does not mean that God will not test us in certain ways. It doesn't mean that he'll spare us from all suffering, all testing, all growing pains. That's, it can't be what that means. So those moments will always come into our lives. We'll see so often moments in our own life where like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we go into a furnace with a, no way, no guarantee that we'll come out of it. You remember that story in Daniel 3? And they say this in response to their situation. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. He can rescue them quite literally from their fiery furnaces and also metaphorically and spiritually from the the people and the the systems and the, the politics that might get them into that situation. This is key, though, in their, in their statement. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. I think they have a good understanding of what the Lord is capable of and what he might do. He can rescue us from anything, but he might not. He might allow us to go through this terrible thing. So again, we return to this question, what does lead us not into temptation actually mean then? Well, the, the sticking point for us is the word temptation. What does that word actually mean? So we have to deal with that. Sometimes it's rendered as trial in the, uh, in the New Testament. And the Greek word uh, perosmos, uh, which is not important, by the way, for, for us to know, but uh, it's maybe helpful to know. 
um, that that word for testing or, or, tr- or tempting or trial appears several important places in the New Testament. So in Matthew 4, after Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan, this is the inauguration of his ministry here on earth, we then read this in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so this is a good case study for us. And there's several important things we need to see in just this one verse. So first, God doesn't prevent Jesus from facing temptation. In fact, the shocking part of it is the Holy Spirit led him to the place where he would be tempted. Mark's gospel says it even stronger. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. Not just led, but pushed him there. And so Jesus is like Job then, in some sense, and that he faces extreme testing through God's own providential plan. Now remember with Job, in the story, Job never hears from God about the conversation that God has with his adversary, Satan, that lays all these terrible traps in Satan's life, or uh, in Job's life. Job is never privy to that conversation in the story. But the Lord is in control, ultimately, of the whole thing. And in his providence, in his wisdom, that's so much greater than ours, he allows for Satan to uh, lay siege to Job's life. So far from being aloof or standoffish to the temptation of Jesus, as we watch him enter Judea's wilderness, we see that God was the one that arranged for him to go there. But that should also clue us in that if God is the one leading him there, God is the one that's with him ultimately, maybe when nobody else is in that moment. So that's the first crucial thing. God's the one that leads his people sometimes um, into paths where they fight temptation, but this is just as crucial, this second point. It is not God in this passage that does the tempting. Notice that. What does it say? That he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by who? The devil. And so this is solely the devil's realm, we would believe then. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, God is always around in the temptation. He might arrange for the circumstances for it to happen, but he's not the one that would ultimately be tempting anyone. He's not the one that acts as a villain in the story, trying to lure us into sin and disbelief and doubt. That is never the realm of God. We see that that's, as James tells us, that's already what's in our heart, and then Satan is the, the father of all that. If Satan is the father of lies, if, if behind, well, I'll put it this way, behind the, um, uh, behind the lie is the liar. Behind the deceit is the deceiver, and that's Satan. We see how he acts towards God's people. Now, that is a story that comes to us at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And this is really interesting. Towards the end of Matthew's gospel, I never saw this until recently. This happens all over again, but it happens in the garden. We read in Matthew 26 that after the Lord has had his last supper with his disciples, Jesus says to the disciples as they enter into 
Gethsemane's garden in the middle of the night. He says, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Same word, same idea there. So at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he's having this major battle with temptation. We read that in Matthew 26, 41. Now the disciples, we know, are pretty dense throughout the Gospels. They have no idea that this is going to be the darkest hour of the darkest night of Jesus' life here on earth. Evil is circling over his head like a a vulture waiting to chow down on a corpse. Nevertheless, he says, not my will be done, Father, but yours instead. And when Jesus' enemies finally do come to arrest him, he tells us in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, he says to them, this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. So all of this leads up to his arrest, his unjust trial, and ultimately when morning comes, his being nailed to a cross where he slowly suffers to death from the curse of sin. And so stepping back for a moment, let's, 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 Remember this, both at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of it, he goes into, uh, or he faces powerful, earth-moving temptation. The cruelest trials he would ever face, I think. It's interesting, too, that both of these things happen um, kind of in reverse order, I think, of what we see with Adam and Eve He faces temptation first in the wilderness, and that leads him eventually to the garden. And we know uh, John describes uh, him coming out of the tomb as Mary meeting a gardener. He's moving from the wilderness into the garden, whereas Adam and Eve started in the garden, fell prey to temptation, and then were sent out into the wilderness. I think there's kind of an interesting reversal happening there. Um, But Hans Urs von Balthasar, who's a great theologian from the mid-20th century, He points out that in doing this, Jesus is always alone in his temptation. Now, the Father and the Spirit are always with. They can't be divided. Um, They're with Jesus. But as far as his human support system, utterly alone. He goes into the wilderness to fast, utterly alone. And he goes in the garden. And he brings his disciples to pray with him, but they keep falling asleep. And so he's utterly alone there. And so von Balthasar says, Jesus prays in the middle of temptation whereas the disciples pray to be preserved from it. So Jesus prays while he's in the middle of it, and the disciples instead pray to be preserved from going into the middle of it. So it's, it's true what we see here. The disciples may be on the outskirts of the wilderness and Jesus fasting. They may be on the edge of the garden right before his trial, and they're even if at all present at Calvary at the foothill. They're not up on the cross next to him. They're they're seeing everything that Jesus is going through from a distance. They're watching him be put into the furnace from a, a spectator's point of view. And we, like them, as we read the story of Jesus and we come to understand it, we are like onlookers and witnesses too. We can view what's happening to the Savior, but we can't enter into it and bear it ourselves. We couldn't possibly bear the load. None of us could. Not all of us together could bear the load that only Jesus, fully God, and yet fully man, can. And so that leads me to this conclusion. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, or 
or however our translations might render that, save us from the time of trial, what we're praying for, in some sense, has already been answered by the life and work of Jesus. Because he's already borne the greater weight of temptation that we couldn't bear for us. And he let the guilt and power of sin affix him to the cross, not us. And so we can pray this in hope, knowing that because he has already suffered the horrors of judgment and death, although sinless in and of himself, let's be clear about that. Jesus never faced a temptation and caved into it. We can know that because he suffered in the the face of temptation, he did it so that in some sense we wouldn't have to. We wouldn't have to be um, confronted uh, in the same way by the power of sin, by the power of death like he was, because he did that in our place as our substitute. And as West Hill puts it, because Jesus was not saved from the sin behind the temptation. Again, he was sinless, but because he was not saved from its consequences, we then are saved from it. So where does this leave us? Well, I think it leaves us with this summary. Whatever temptations and trials do come our way, and they will come, they come first and foremost from the Lord's sovereign allowance. He allows them to come into our life. But when they do come, they're never, in a sense, punitive. They're never in a, a, a vindictive. They're never trying to get us to prove our worth before God. Jesus already took care of that for us. So when trials and temptations and tests come, it's never so that we can um, be justified before the Lord God. That's never how that works. And, but the New Testament does guarantee, and we should not lean away from this, the New Testament guarantees that we will suffer because of our connection to Christ. If they hated the master, they're going to hate the servants. If they hated the head, they're going to hate the body. And so because of our faith in Christ, because of our union with him now as the church to Christ as the head, our faith in Jesus will cause us problems. Now, the problems that we face socially, politically, I would even imagine financially, all those things, professionally, I'm not saying they're not costly, but we're very fortunate in the, in the world in which we live um, to not bear the full weight of some of those things. Because if we talk to some of our brothers and sisters in Africa or Asia or even parts of Europe now, they can testify to the costliness of being a Christian. Now, again, not making light of what we go through here, but I, I think it would behoove us to really learn from our brothers and sisters around the world that don't have many of the privileges and wealths that we do um, to really see what a Christian can endure. But remember in our, our, our study of First Peter that really we, we shouldn't be shocked or surprised when something wicked this way comes. Uh, Peter tells us in, in chapter 4, verse 12 of his first letter, he says it clearly, Dear friends, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal, that's the same word in Matthew, 
That means temptation or trial. Do not be surprised when that fiery temptation or trial comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. It's not an unusual thing to be a Christian and to go through this kind of a crucible. God allows us to go through it, and he even, as West Hill reminds us, permits us to be hammered on the anvil of suffering. But why? Why would he do that? Peter makes it clear, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we can pray to be spared of the worst, or rather, can we? Let me ask the question. Can we pray to be spared of the worst, most excruciating parts of our testing? Can we do that? I think the Lord's Prayer tells us yes. Pray that we, the Lord leads us out of, out, out of those uh, crushing things. Because Jesus, in some sense, has already suffered, died, and rose again, thwarting that temptation's power. He's already dealt with that. But perhaps we should be prepared, too, that there are some things that we will not be spared from enduring. But endurance, we know, is a good thing. We know that what we endure, we endure to a good end. We would never say that, yeah, it's good when people... we got to be careful about this. I'll, I'll say it this way. We shouldn't be blithe and, and um, flippant when people are going through suffering and just being like, oh, yeah, but you know, you'll be better for it on the other side. That's a, that's a cruel and unchristian way to respond to people who are suffering. We wouldn't want people to say that to us. So we never go after looking for suffering. We don't ultimately believe that suffering is going to be a part of God's new creation. But we do know that suffering is a pathway somehow through the, through the wisdom and providence of God, that suffering leads us to a better thing, which is God himself, which is the glory of God himself. Or as the apostle Paul reminds us, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And that hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's the the thing for which we hope. Fellowship, union with God, pure peace with one another and with God. That's the thing we hope for. And we hope that way when our character has been proven and we only prove our character when we endure suffering. And so that's that's the reality of those things. But... Nevertheless, we can really be calm in the midst of the furnace because as Johnny Cash sang about, and we know he's the great American prophet, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he said, but there was a fourth man in the fire. Remember, that's what they saw. They put three men in, and they looked and said, who's that fourth man in there? We know from Christians, that's, that's a, a, a Christophany, as we might say, and a, and a, 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 an early pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus in the place with us. He goes into the furnace with us and protects us from its fire. 
So Jesus has already gone through the furnace depths. He did that in his suffering and his crucifixion and his death and his burial. And now he is raised up from all that. And, and West Hill has just a wonderful phrase here. He says, by his redemptive alchemy. You remember what alchemy is. Kind of a, uh, uh, alchemy is a, a changing from one substance into another. By Christ's redemptive alchemy, he's transformed those hellish flames of temptation into burnishing purifiers. So the things that would have killed and destroyed us have been transformed by Christ simply to purify us and to make us ready for what comes next. And as Karl Barth so wonderfully reminds us, God has already done what we ask of him. He's done that. He is, he is not going to lead us into temptation because he was led into temptation for us. He won't let us succumb to temptation because he succumbed under the power of sin and death for us. And in Christ, we can pray even now, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the time of trial. And so, Christian, with that in mind, and having that confidence and assurance, we are bold to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen.